everybody welcome to not safe for wonks exciting episode it's brandon buchanan here with kennedy cooper this is like i it's always kind of weird when we have a guest on our show that we've been uh like talking about behind her back for a long time donna doesn't <laughs> know this but like we've been talking about how do we get donna on the show for at least like the last few weeks like a significant amount of time I, I, since like october actually for yes, sure you, you've been on our can we get to donna list since october and in october we were like we're probably not there yet and we should probably like wait and it's my pleasure guys thank you for having me on yeah absolutely for people who don't know uh donna i running in texas's 31st district this district was kind of like a small national story um because it had a very close election last time Mm -hmm. um, so we're we're obviously looking for ways to build on that success. It's a very crowded primary. It takes a lot to stand out in a really crowded primary against a, an incumbent. But I I really think it's been a really good opportunity to hear from people who have really bold ideas and bold leadership and maybe come from outside of the political norm. Donna, can you talk a little bit about what your background is and how it clashes with uh, maybe your opponent and what the rest of Congress tends to look like? Yeah, so I'm an average middle class person. Um, my background is uh, I'm an electrical and computer engineer, and I started out as a design engineer and then moved into product management running uh, large product business lines. And then later on in my career, I started my own tech consulting firm. So folks like me don't uh, necessarily go into politics at all because we have decent middle class lives and uh, we're not struggling. So we don't often realize the challenges that are going on. And many people in the tech industry, engineers, technologists, IT professionals have high paying jobs, so they can afford to have a decent middle class life. And so a lot of times politics is not number one on their mind. It's a huge contrast from what our Congress looks like today, which is probably 90%, if not further, lawyers and people from legal backgrounds who have pursued this career of, or have had a political career for a really, really long time. So definitely a, a very different background. And I think most people in my position have never thought of running for office like myself. I've never, ever aspired to run for office. I never even thought about it. But I think it's important for average folks to come out and join in this process of restructuring and rebuilding our country and really looking at the systemic challenges that more than 50% of our country is facing. Was there a specific moment that made you realize that you needed to get off the sidelines and be more directly involved in what was happening around you? Was it a gradual thing? Um, did you kind of always have your politics? What made you take the jump? Well, about four or five years early on in my career, into my career, Every single manufacturing and assembly worker in my organization, when I was a design engineer, were laid off. Many of them never worked a day in their life again. And that has always stayed with me and bothered me as I moved to Austin to pursue my technology career. And I've tried to help a lot of folks with their careers, helping them with education. And about five or six years ago, I got involved with a nonprofit called Product Camp Austin, which provides education to anybody completely freely. Part of the reason that I joined that nonprofit is I really believe in individuality. And if you don't have financial freedom, you can't truly be independent and live freely. And after running that nonprofit, which was struggling originally when I 
took it over and ran it. I was on the board of it. We raised tens of thousands of dollars for it. We built it up to an almost 4,000 or more than 4,000 member nonprofit. What I realized is nonprofits barely touch the surface of the challenges that people are facing. And even in Austin, Texas, where the perception is that the unemployment rate is extremely low, there are people here that are well-educated, that are freelancing, that are barely getting by. And there is a huge percentage of the population that work retail and service jobs that are supporting the rest of the high paid earners in this community and in this city. And what I realized is that we need to do more. I need to do more. And that's really what made me jump in and say, we can no longer just sit by and say, hey, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to get up in the morning and do my work. And I'm going to try to donate or donate my time and that's going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. So that was really what drove me to pursue office, something that I never thought of before. You've done a lot of, you know, working in teams and working in product management. How does that background help make you a better communicator? Has it made it easier for you to organize and reach people? Do they kind of gel with you immediately? Or does it take a little bit of time getting used to people? Just, just how has that helped you or hurt you or, you know, been? I think one of the biggest advantages is the way I talk to people. The average person in the United States is really sick and tired of political talk, our two-party system that's yelling at each other and not really listening. So there's two skills that I really bring in from my background. One is the ability to listen and to listen acutely at what people are not just saying, but what they mean when they say, which is one of the big roles of a product manager and as a research engineer. And two, being able to talk to them in terms that relate to them. So you're not just talking past them, but it's the way you talk about the challenges that we face and how we're going to solve them. So these two skill sets have definitely helped me connect with just about anybody. One of the things that a lot of people outside of Texas uh, may think about Texas is that Texas is very red. But in fact, Texas is not just Republicans. There are a lot of independents, Democrats, progressives in Texas. And many people think independents are centrist. This is not true. Independents just mean that they don't necessarily subscribe to every piece of the platform of one of the two parties. But if you talk to them in terms of policy and things that impact their bottom line, their life, their family, their future, they're going to take notice and they're going to listen to you. So these have definitely helped me really listen to my community and my district in a way that maybe a lot of other candidates uh, may be missing. Let's talk a little bit more about your district and maybe just Texas in general as well. You touched on it a little bit, but I think that this is really relevant. Um, we had a conversation about a week ago with Nabila Islam, and she talked about the importance of when you're trying to flip districts, seeing someone that actually you relate to, that represents you, that you know feels like an actual member of your community. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how progressives are going to hopefully be able to push Texas over the edge. Interesting thing about Texas, which many of you may or may not be aware of, is that it's extremely gerrymandered. And the GOP, because they have gerrymandered Texas for decades, have really set it up in a way that it can never really change in terms of representation. And they've gone out of their way painstakingly to ensure this dominance over Texas. 
What's happened in the last five years is that Austin, Texas has grown aggressively into a major city. And because of the cost of housing, people have now moved into the suburbs all around Austin. This is what's really grown Williamson County, which is one of the two counties that Texas's 31st district represents. We also have a ton of tech companies like Google, Apple, and Amazon that have moved into North Austin. And the folks that work in these organizations live in North Austin. They live in Williamson County. Williamson County has grown in population more than 50,000 people just since the last cycle. Wow. And this district was lost only by 8,000 votes, 2.9% from flipping blue. So there is a enormous opportunity to flip this district that is now completely out of the hands of the GOP because of the growth in Austin. Now, what you've heard and what's going to make an impact in always red districts, people often don't know how close it is. They may know that this place is growing, but on a day-to-day basis, people do not know. That is why a strong field program where you're knocking on doors and phone banking and actually interacting with people in your community face-to-face has a huge impact beyond anything else you can do. A lot of times people run political campaigns by focusing heavily on advertising, but in always red districts like that, you have to earn the trust of people that you're actually going to make change and you have solutions and they need to see you in front of their door. It's also extremely difficult in districts like mine, which is extremely gerrymandered. In fact, majority of this district is rural and there's a huge difference in the type of folks that live in Williamson County versus Bell County. Bell County is home to the largest armored vehicle military base in the United States. There are more veterans per square mile in Texas's 31st district than anywhere else in Texas. So there's lots of differences as you go across this district that make it a huge challenge also to connect and to get the message to different kinds of people. Well, I think that's really interesting. It sounds like definitely a very difficult uphill battle. Do you have any specific plans to expand the electorate in your district? Yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned, we had over 50,000 people move into this just one of two counties. One of the challenges in our system is that when you move, you have to re-register to vote. And a lot of folks you know, that's the last thing on their mind because moving is extremely stressful. We have the opportunity to identify who's moved into this district and register them. We actually, our campaign has the intelligence. We know who's moved in, where they live, and we can register them. And this is one of the key focuses of our campaign in addition to a very strong field program. And this will expand electric. The second thing is The movement of folks in here, they tend to be younger families with children looking for a decent life. And these folks tend to be more left-leaning. They're more open to new ideas and bold new representation. So we absolutely have an opportunity to expand the electorate in a big way. The third way is that this district has many underserved communities like the Latino and the Hispanic communities, a lot of these communities have never been reached out to. Candidates have not gone and really asked for their votes. And we need to engage with them. We need to tell them, hey, you actually have a choice in representation this year. Here's what we're running on. Here's how we can solve these problems. In Bell County, we have a 25 to 30% African-American or Black population. Most candidates, many candidates, when I go out there and I've been out there all year, 
when I talk to those communities, they say, we have never met a candidate that's come out. You are the first person that we've ever met, Donna. So yes, there's a huge opportunity. And that's how our campaign is going to flip this district by actually asking for votes, by actually creating a connection with the community, and by developing our platform, which much of our platform was developed in collaboration with parts of this community. And that's how we bring them in, get them excited to come out and vote, because now they have a hand in changing our future. And I think you're kind of lucky because, I mean, living in Texas is inspiration. If you are somebody who's coming into Austin or coming into Jefferson from outside of the state, and you are just hearing about the status quo of Republican governance in Texas for the first time, that can be enough by itself to motivate you to go, wow, I don't know where I came from, but I don't want it to stay like this where I'm at now. Can you talk a little bit about what your representative is currently like and maybe in Texas, maybe in your district, what have you been able to tell people about what the current governing is like there that fires people up and gets them motivated to change the situation? Number one, as you go around this district, most people wouldn't be able to tell you who their representative is, their U.S. congressional representative is. Number two, our U.S. congressional representative is a nine-term candidate who is a build-a-wall Trumper. When you would land on his website in big, bold letters, it says, build the wall. And recently, about a week and a half or two ago, he's changed that website to now a photograph of him and President Trump next to each other. That is his legacy. That is what he's running on. In the last four or five years, I'm told that he has never held a true open town hall where he is engaged in conversation with the people of the district. Now, after he almost lost in 2018, he has tried to make himself more available and held some more private smaller gatherings among core supporters. But in general, if you had a baby when our current representative was put in office, that baby would now be old enough to go to college. And if you're going to, if you're graduating from high school in Killeen ISD or Temple ISD, you still have the same challenges you had almost two decades ago, which is college is extremely expensive. It's out of reach for most families. And even if you want to go to trade school, you still have to live. And up in Bell County, the only opportunities for jobs is retail and service jobs under $10 an hour. So and in the entire two decades, our representative has really done nothing to transform the lives of people and give them a brighter future. That's what we're up against. And that's why I'm running for Congress, because we need someone who's actually going to work for our community and bring change and something to look forward to. On that note, let's just get into it. What are some of your key platform issues that are going to change your district if you're elected? So my signature issue is healthcare for all. And the difference between healthcare for all and Medicare for all is healthcare for all actually takes Medicare for all and accelerates it to get it to everybody faster. And it does that in two key ways. Number one, healthcare for all calls for scaling the infrastructure of healthcare in order to reduce the cost of healthcare significantly. So it doesn't matter whether you have private insurance or you have some other kind of insurance today. For example, the VA would be considered not private insurance. The challenge in our healthcare system today is cost, and we have to bring down the cost. Scaling the infrastructure would bring down the cost drastically. The second thing that Healthcare for All addresses on top of being a single-payer healthcare solution 
just like Medicare for All, is that it addresses the problem that in our country today, we actually don't have enough physicians and we have a huge lack of primary care physicians. And the reason that people don't go into primary care is because you can't pay off $200,000, $300,000 of student loans when most primary care physicians make an average of $125,000 to maybe $150,000 a year. Now, that sounds like a lot of money for most people in this country because it's way above the median uh, household income. However, when you have student loans that are big as a mortgage and that are growing every single day because of interest, it's almost impossible to pay them off until you reach your 40s and 50s. So physicians tend to specialize so that they can pay off their student loans. What Healthcare for All does is it incentivizes physicians to go practice primary care in that field, and it pays off their student loans so they are encouraged to do that. And by doing that and scaling the infrastructure, it gives every single person the ability to go to a primary care physician when they need to. So accelerate preventative care, not use ER as our first line of defense, because we know ER is extremely expensive. And that's how we get Medicare for all faster to every single person in this country. This is a huge crisis. We have tens of thousands of people dying in our country today. If you are one of those people that had to lose a family member, this is a crisis for you. This is a crisis for your entire family. The good news is we can solve it. We can lower the cost of healthcare and we don't have to increase taxes on anyone. And here's the reason why. Many Americans are unaware that covering every single person in this country would cost anywhere between two to three and a half trillion dollars per year. And this is supported by at least a dozen studies that were done by various organizations, including conservative organizations like the Koch brothers organizations. And in 2018, we as a country paid $3.65 trillion for healthcare while leaving out almost 80 million people who are uninsured or uninsured. What I want the American people to know is that we can solve healthcare and we can do it in a cost-effective way. And that will solve enormous challenges in our country. For example, if you have the assurance of healthcare, think about it. You're going to go out and start that new business. It's going to increase entrepreneurship in this country. It will increase high-paid jobs in this country in a big way. So when you have that, that's going to be big. That is the signature part of my policy in addition to education for all and also real pay for all, equal justice for all. These things really, really impact our community here in Texas's 31st district. So since you are someone who is in that ideal middle class bracket that is so revered in political discussions, you've probably experienced the quote unquote best that health insurance has to offer. A lot of people right now are debating over whether or not there is some merit to people like you getting to keep a good private health insurance plan. I feel like you must be the person who can definitively give the best argument on whether or not there is any value to health insurance and these health insurance plans that the middle class has. I can tell you definitively, private health insurance offers no value to anybody in the United States. And I am a product of having private health insurance, good private health insurance through businesses and corporations that I've worked for my entire career. And I can tell you that I am not the only one. 
most of my network is average middle class technology people, engineers, business people. We all have private insurance through businesses in the United States. We all struggle because we all have we all pay into this private insurance. We pay for our premiums even though the company pays for part of it. We're very aware that our total income is decreased because the company that's paying you takes into account the fact they're paying for your premiums. That is part of your full compensation and benefits, number one. Number two, there are people who have great private health insurance and still put off healthcare. And I'll give you an example. I had a friend who tore his ACL and waited the rest of the year, three or four months, because he did not want to pay his copay and the deductible, the $3,000 or $4,000 deductible that even people who have good health insurance have to meet twice because it clocks out on December 31st. So you waited till January to get this care. Now imagine if you had cancer, you can't wait. Or if you waited, it would get worse. And then the cost of healthcare or caring for what you have would actually go up. There's actually a study that came out that one in four people, 25% of Americans are delaying critical care because they can't afford their deductibles. So it doesn't matter whether you have private insurance or not. The definition of private insurance is very simple. They want to pay out the very least to providers and they want to take in the maximum amount of premiums because they only have one goal and that goal is billions of dollars in profit. This is not good for anybody in this country. And every single person who has private health insurance who experiences will tell you this. What we're hearing out there about people wanting to keep their private health insurance is a misnomer and it's mostly propaganda. There is a very small slice of folks that may have all of their premiums paid for and a low deductible. But what they don't know is that they're getting that at the cost of income, that their employer or whoever's providing that to them is taking into consideration that part of their payment towards their health insurance as part of their pay. So in essence, you're just making less pay for getting a good private health insurance. That's all it is. So for people who don't have a good ear for context, if Pramila Jayapal's bill is up for a vote, um, you are voting yes on that bill, correct? If I'm voted into Congress, my job is to advocate for the best policies for the American people. And my job would be to collaborate and get in Rep. Jayapal's ear and tell her about scaling the infrastructure and bringing more primary care physicians in as part of her or Senator Sanders' bill. So I would be advocating for that. And absolutely, I'm 100% for single-payer Medicare for all. I do believe that we need to do the other things as well in order to make it successful and bring down the cost. So I would advocate for those two. Something else you mentioned was real pay for all. That's not a phrase that is being commonly thrown around in politics right now. Maybe you could explain exactly what you mean by that. So one of the concepts that a lot of Democrats talk about is a living wage. It's a very, very common phrase, and it normally you know, refers to $15 an hour. What I'm saying is taking some sort of static number as our baseline for minimum wage has absolutely no basis in logic. Number one, you can't live on $15 an hour in most large cities in the United States. The cost of living from county to county, city to city varies significantly depending on where you live in the United States. I'm opposed to the term living wage because people don't just want to get by. Americans want to thrive. 
And a thriving wage is the concept that you should not just be able to pay for your basics like rent or mortgage or your utilities and food, but you should be able to save up to put a down payment on the American dream of owning a home. And you should be able to save for retirement, have been have benefits so that you can retire someday. That every single American that gets up in the morning and works full time deserves a thriving wage. They deserve to be able to be paid for the value that they create for the businesses that they create. And that is the concept of real pay for all versus just a living wage. A lot of people ask me, well, how are you going to actually get a thriving wage in place? And how will that work? One of the things that people need to realize that when you have a thriving wage, you're actually giving money to people who are making less than $50,000 or $75,000 a year. And when you give, when they have that extra disposable income, that money goes right back into the economy. Families take their kids out for dinner on Friday. They buy a better backpack. They get some swimming lessons for their kids. It actually generates more income for other people and it organically grows the economy. And this is good for us as a country. Uh, There are a lot of people in your district that are making just barely over $15 an hour. Maybe they're making like $20 an hour. And they oppose raising the level of pay for somebody who's slightly one rung below them uh, because they feel like that's raising them up to their level. How do you explain to people economically that like a rising tide can lift all boats and can improve their situation as well? As I go around my district, I haven't faced where somebody comes up to me and says, you shouldn't be paying people more. What most people tend to tell me is, well, these starting out jobs are jobs that people are supposed to graduate out of. And one of the things that we need to understand is that in our country, there's actually not enough high paid jobs to begin with. So if every single person wanted to graduate out of a low paid job that's under $15 an hour, let's just say, for example, it's actually not possible. That's why we need to bring up the bottom to real pay versus a living wage, number one. Number two, let me give you this example. If you're 18 years old and your parents say, hey, you hit 18, we don't have money to send you to college, so go get a job. And by the way, get your own place. You're an adult now. Your options are very limited. Most of the jobs that are available to you are retail jobs or busing tables. You can barely make enough money to live on that. And if you're working 40, 50, 60 hours, working these really low wage jobs, minimum wage jobs at $7.25 an hour, how do you actually have time to get different skills or get education or go to trade school to make more money and to graduate out of these jobs? It's an impossibility. This is more of a common argument that people present. What they don't realize is that this argument is 100% propaganda. There is no basis in logic for this argument. And there are multiple studies that being done out there that show this, that we just don't have enough jobs. The only way that you bring everybody up into a thriving wage is that you institute a thriving wage because people come first, people's dignity come first. We have more than enough resources in this world for every single person to be able to live comfortably. And we need to really look at our economic system to ensure that people come first and make sure that everybody can have a decent life. 
I definitely agree. And, you know, what strikes me sometimes with this is just the dishonesty of the capitalists, because it's obvious that they still want to go out to restaurants and that, you know, they're going to want someone to serve them there. There's no reason to treat some jobs like they're just unworthy. Absolutely. So I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that's a very interesting policy, the, the entire real pay concept. I think that more people should be talking about the economy the way that you're talking about it right now. One of the things I want to bring to your listeners is, look, if you go to a sit-down restaurant, that means you want service. That means that server is critical to that business because you want that experience. When you have a restaurant in downtown Austin, which has grown significantly over the last five years, and that restaurant closes down because they can't pay the rent, we don't say, oh, well, the landlord should just reduce the rent. We say, that's too bad. Economic times have changed. The business case doesn't work. But we're completely comfortable saying, let's just pay people less so businesses can thrive. It's completely illogical if you think about them side by side. We should be able to pay people for the value that they create. And there's obviously a value that every single person creates if they're working for a living. And we have to recognize that. Oh, um, one of the things that builds your capacity to have a job and jump into the workplace in a way that gives you uh, more leverage over your employer is like going into the workplace with a high education level, especially as jobs uh, that market becomes more specialized. Can you talk a little bit about like people see that as an escape route, but once they actually enter the system, they see that it's a completely different world because the financial costs from like what they were raised to think they would be you know, your parent might sit down with you and say, hey, you've got to get an education because that's the way to get a good job. And we've got an entire generation that was raised to think that. And by the time they got there, the education industry became exponentially more expensive. How did it get to be this bad? And how can it be fixed? That's a great question. And one of the things that every single one of us should be asking is, wait a second, we've had massive improvement in technology over the last two decades. With technology, the cost of education should be exponentially getting cheaper. Why is it higher? And the reason it's higher is that we have created an artificial market for student loans. And universities have taken advantage of that and propped up the cost of education, which has no basis in the actual value that they're providing. So that is the main reason. When kids go to school today, they're told, hey, if you get a great education, you can get a good job and have a decent life. But what's happened is this. You go to school and you end up with tens of thousands in student loans. These student loans continue to expo exponentially grow because of interest rates. And you get out, and if you're a school teacher, a social worker, mental health counselor, or even a physician or an engineer, you find that you are unable to pay back these massive student loans on the salary that you're getting. So this is a completely manufactured problem that we've created in order to take all the wealth that working people in America are creating and basically say, hey, you got to pay back your student loans. And we've got these big student loan companies making billions of dollars in profits and taking advantage of the situation. What I'm proposing is that we create a competitive system, especially in state schools. So for example, today, the federal government actually gives millions of dollars to state schools. We should be incentivizing them to compete and bring down the cost of education. A lot of people will argue, well, how do you do that? Let me give you some examples. I did my master's 
from Purdue University in electrical and computer engineering. And they're one of the top schools for a lot of different areas of education. Purdue University has been able to keep down the cost of its education year over year while still continuing to deliver a very high quality education. Another example is Georgia Tech. They're offering a master's in computer science for only $15,000. So it is doable. What we need to do is we need to incentivize state schools across the country to come up with programs that are high quality, but low cost and compete for funds. And what my education for all plan does is it creates that kind of a program with five different criteria that schools are measured on in order to be able to compete for funds. The other thing that we need to do is we need to incentivize folks right away to serve in rural and underserved communities. Today, if you go out to Salado, Texas, which is in my district, or Taylor or Hutto, which are small rural communities, they have a huge challenge in hiring physicians or hiring mental health counselors or really good K through 12 school teachers. We need to pay off student loans 100% so we can incentivize folks and build a program very similar to the GI Bill so that people can serve their country in, in education. That's what I'm proposing to combat both the cost of education and incentivize people to go serve where they're needed the most. What are some ways that technology could lower the cost of and perhaps change education significantly? And what's stopping that from being implemented right now? There's really nothing stopping that except our will to want to lower the cost of education. There are so many ways that technology can help lower the cost. For example, we actually don't need to have every class inside the classroom uh, where you have to live on campus. We can rotate how many semesters you live on campus, where you live off campus, and we, we can integrate you know, work and paid internship programs and co-ops with your education. There are so many technology advances when it comes to video conferencing, being able to interact with a professor, being able to learn online that we can incorporate. And by the way, universities are already incorporating so there's a multitude of ways that can be done to bring education closer to every single you know, student that wants to get it. The other way we can use technology is we're not fully getting, for example, internet services to every single part of the United States. So today we are constricted to certain networks. We don't have municipal owned, for example, internet infrastructure. If we could put those together, we could lower the cost of bringing high-speed internet into any home, any school, and being able to get kids access to an availability of literally inexpensive to no-cost education, being able to take classes from any professor around the world. Now, people are working on these things. However, it hasn't translated into lowering the cost of education because of the student loan industry that exists and how easy it is to sign up for a loan and get it and put yourself into debt forever. We have to put an immediate halt to the student loan scam that our government has sanctioned for our country. That is the number one challenge that we have to solve in Congress. Donna, I have to say, it's very exciting talking to you because we talk to a lot of progressives, but the way that you talk about some of these issues is so well-informed. It's just inspiring to, to hear you get into the details of some of this stuff. But I'm curious if everyone feels that way in your state or not. And in particular, what I'm curious about is, has the Democratic Party in Texas embraced your campaign or have you had some pushback from traditional moderate Democrats? 
I think one of the challenges in our country is that we are fighting major propaganda that's concerted, that's focused, and that's very, very well-funded. And we need to understand that our political system is completely owned by wealthy individuals. This is a major issue for folks like me coming into office or wanting to change the outcome of where, our, where we're going as a country. Reality is this, if you want to run for office, the only way that you're evaluated is based on how much money you can raise. So if you take a middle-class person like me, for example, most of my friends and network are middle-class people. I don't have a network of high net worth multimillionaire friends that are gonna be able to write the full maxed out check of $2,800 to our campaign. This limits the type of expertise and the type of people you're getting in Congress today. It's very much limited to wealthy individuals or individuals that are well-connected or individuals that can easily be influenced by money. When these folks are giving you $2,800 checks or bigger or bundling them, it comes with directives. It comes with things and agendas and special interests that they want you to accomplish. If we really want true democracy, we need to get money out of politics. Think about it this way. Today, we talk about diversity of representation all the time, right? And we talk about it mostly in terms of diversity of gender. We talk about it mostly in terms of diversity of ethnicity, but we rarely talk about it in terms of diversity of expertise. We don't have a single female electrical and computer engineer in Congress today, as far as I know. I hope I can be proved wrong. But we need to bring different expertise and average people like me are not even thinking of running for office because of the challenge of raising money for U.S. congressional races. In my district, the biggest challenge is I am in a very crowded primary and most Democrats want to stay away from taking a bet on many different unknown names. We don't have a big political figure running in this race. So a lot of people don't want to take chances on a first-time candidate like me because they don't really know that I can accomplish this, that I can flip this district blue. What I want your listeners to know is that we can do this. We need the support, but really we're running a campaign with one hand, sometimes two hands tied behind our backs because we just don't have the ability to raise the funds that a lot of well-connected, more traditional democratic candidates might be able to. This is our biggest challenge. It is not about getting these ideas. When I talk about my ideas in my community, they want to listen. They are amazed that there's actually people talking about solutions that they have really good policy proposals that can be executed on. These are not just ideas up in the air. Every single one of my proposals on my website, whether you look at healthcare for all, education for all, real pay for all, equal justice for all, all of them come with multi-page white papers that describe how they can be enacted, why we will not raise taxes on folks, why we can pay for these, and why they will be really great for our economy and great for every single person. Our biggest challenge as U.S. congressional candidates is getting this message to the people in our district. And this is a huge challenge, especially in gerrymandered districts like mine. If I could get my message to every single person in this district, we would hands down not just flip this district, but we would flip it in a big way. Because I can tell you that when I explain my policy proposals, people in my district, 
they are on board, they get it, and they want it. But we are fighting mass media that's fighting against some of these ideas and getting across the fact that these are not viable when in reality, the solutions that I'm providing are evidence-based, fact-based, and they would be great for the United States. And we can prove it and we have it. You have a completely independent platform. You are running without any corporate PACs. You are not taking any donations that are from any of those industries. So given that, once that door kind of flies open and someone like you gets into Congress, and I think that over the next few months, we're going to see a lot of people who are going to push the needle on a lot of very close districts from people who are completely sick of the Trump administration and are waking up to how their representatives locally have been complicit in that administration. So once a new group gets into Congress in 2020, and we're really hoping that you're a part of that group, because like I said, we've been like following you for a while. What policies need to change on a national level to make it easier for the next wave of people to come after you to blow the door open even further so that we can have continued success going into 2022, 2024, 2026? onwards and like that, what are the major reforms that need to be made to campaign finance, to voting, or whatever you see that needs reform to ensure that there is a continued diversity of thought and background and things like that? So a couple of things. One, we definitely need to institute term limits. Serving your country in Congress should be something that you come in and you do, and it should not become a career where you're entrenched and you're completely bought out by special interests, lobbyists, and corporations. This is our number one directive if we want to bring true democracy and a Congress that represents the people of our country. That's our number one. Number two, we absolutely need to take money out of politics. And let me tell your listeners this. This came as a very rude awakening to me. What happens when you run for Congress is because you're only judged on the amount of money you can raise, most congressional candidates are spending anywhere from eight to nine hours a day doing call time. And the definition of call time is basically you pick up the phone and you call donors all across the country, wealthy and others, asking for money. So imagine spending your entire day asking people for money where majority of the folks are going to say no because they've never heard of you. Majority of the people have no interest in, you know, giving you money in a primary, especially in a contested primary, where you should be really spending that time block walking, meeting with local organizations, meeting with the constituents in your district, telling them about your ideas. You cannot do that if you're spending eight to nine hours is raising money. Now, more established and popular and incumbents don't need to do that. For example, my representative, who's a nine-term GOP guy, he's raised- Nine terms. To- nine terms. <laughs> that's, yes. that's 18 oh, years. There are, there are children who were born- that can vote and have never had any other representation. Like eight is enough. He has raised close to a million dollars, probably more right now. And imagine how many $25 donations you need to reach a million dollars. His donations are tens of thousands of dollars at a time. For example, this congressman took tens of thousands of dollars from the GEO group. The GEO group is the organization that runs all the private prisons. They are the company that runs private prisons down on the border where the 17-year-old Carlos Hernandez died in his own pool of blood. Now, imagine representatives 
that are incumbents across our country taking tens of thousands of dollars from these type of corporations, from military organizations that are in the military industrial complex. He's taken hundreds of thousands of dollars that have added up from all these organizations without even having to lift a finger. Now you have congressional candidate like me that's trying to win this district against that. Imagine how much harder I have to work. How do I even raise enough money to get my message to people? So if I have one message for you, if you want to bring true democracy and you want to bring change and you want to bring bold new representation, then we have to take money out of politics. I cannot stress enough that just getting small donations will not change the trajectory of our country. Somebody like a Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at this time has built up a reputation where they can do that, where millions of people, when they give $1 or $2, can raise millions of dollars. But for the average first-time U.S. congressional candidate like myself, we don't have the power to do that. We're not going to get our message to millions of people in this country. That's reality. So until we take out the system, we will not change the future of our democracy. And this is the most important thing that I can leave for your listeners to think about. You know, we talked about student loan debt and how you get like a huge amount of money up front and you spend a lot of time paying that money back to an extent that you don't have time to do anything else. Uh, I think that a lot of people who are in our Congress right now are in a kind of a moral debt because they have this huge amount of money and they have to pay it back. Uh, and it's not through a direct cash payment, but it's through upholding a system that allows those people to profit more and more. It's a moral debt. It's favors. And they have to spend just all that they have in paying that off because, you know, they have to worry about if they take one step to the side to stop one evil action, there's somebody who has like maybe less of a conscience that will jump right in and primary them. And they'll be the ones that are, you know, drinking from the hose. Brandon, it's even worse than that. Let me tell you an example of how this works. Let's say, for example, my representative, John Carter, takes $30,000 or $25,000 from a corporation or an organization or a lobbyist or a special interest group. These groups and corporations are getting U.S. government contracts and paybacks in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Let me repeat that. Hundreds of millions of dollars. And what they give to these incumbents in Congress is pennies on the dollar, chump change. They will throw 5000 to 30000 for hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts. This is how bought out our Congress is. Ask yourself, is it really worth running our democracy based on these little pieces of pennies that are coming to you and selling out just to stay in power? advantage that that you have and people like you have donna is that the policies that you end up promoting after you've taken this chump change are so unconscionable to anybody that's had time to have a conversation and really think things through uh, aside from just like passively taking things in that it is becoming easier and easier to reach those people so i hope that like this show becomes like part of that conversation not only just reaches people who nationally might live in New York and might not have heard of you until today, but also reaches people because, you know, I'm in a red state. Kennedy's, you're, you're in a purplish state. That people that might not be tuned into this at all can have it come across their nose and their eyes 
and they can kind of stand up and say, wow, this is not something that should be tolerated. And because it's gotten to such an extreme depth, it's not a difficult argument to have and to win. It's just a, ma a matter of, like you said, the visibility. Can you tell people what they can do to get more involved with you? Because now that they've kind of been introduced to you and you've made that introduction, instead of you having to make phone calls for eight hours a day, you can do this <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully like for the rest of the year, for the rest of the primary. By the way, um, everybody just forget about ev everything else that's going in the prime in that primary. We're just doing Donna. What can people do to get more involved with you and what you're doing? So there's several ways you can help. Number one, you can share this interview with everybody you know and urge them to listen to it and get to know our campaign. That in itself is huge. Number two, you can ask everybody you know to chip in a little bit. And if you have that wealthy uncle or grandma, ask them to chip in a little bit more. We can really use help fundraising. We are stuck in the system that if we don't raise enough money, we can't reach every single individual in our district. We're just stuck in the system that right now we have no control over. And three, we need help in many other ways. You can volunteer on our campaign. You can remote phone bank if you're not in the district. If you're in the district, please reach out, volunteer at votefordonna.com, and we'll get you involved. So we can use your help in many different ways. If you're a media person or you do graphic design and you can maybe offer your services to us and volunteer on our campaign, we can use that. And you can do that from anywhere in the country. Every little bit helps. Share this podcast. Tell folks about us. Right now, most people in the United States have never heard about this district and how close it is. Just 8,000 votes from Flipping Blue. We can get this done. We can get this voice with real great solutions to Congress, and we can make real impact. So the website is votefordonna.com, and that's spelled V-O-T-E-F-O-R-D-O-N-N-A.com. And please engage us with us, reach out to us, and share our content. And of course, that link will be in the show notes. Donna, could you also shout out your Twitter really quick? Because Twitter is a big part of our following. So my Twitter is my first name, Donna, D-O-N-N-A. My last name, Imam, it's spelled I-M-A-M, and then T-X for Texas. So Donna Imam, Texas. Follow me on Twitter, engage, retweet, share. That's how we get our message out. Well, Donna, this has been an incredible interview. We definitely enjoyed speaking with you at last, and I really hope that we get to speak with you again. And I really hope that we'll be speaking with you as a sitting member of Congress. Oh, yeah. Let me make this promise to you. If I get into Congress, I promise I will come on your show. Oh, yeah. That's all we can ask for. <laughs> Absolutely. So, everybody, thank you for listening. It's been like a good good hour 45 minutes 50 minutes whatever time and we've covered a whole lot it's been great donna i mom not safe for wonks we'll do better next time thank you for listening Have a great hour. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much bye bye everyone bye bye